All right, kids, if you want to come on up, take a seat on the front pew. Oh, it's okay if you sit there, Adrian. It's okay. We just can't have everybody sitting there. But it's okay. Maybe, yeah, maybe there could be three. But for now, we just have two. I want to ask you guys a question. Now, you don't have any little brothers and sisters, right? You're the youngest in your family. And Lillian, you're the youngest in your family, right? You have a little sister named Lillian. And you have a little brother named Adrian and a little sister named Lillian, right? Now, you guys have older brothers and sisters, right? Shane has older, two older sisters and an older brother. And you guys have Davian and Valen that are older than you guys, right? So you were the last one born. That's right. Well, Lily was the last one born in your house, too. Well, I want to ask you a question. You have brothers and sisters. Some are younger, some are older. Do you guys ever fight? You do? What happens when you fight? Do you get in trouble with your mom sometimes? What if you did something and you maybe you you hurt your little brother or your little sister? Or maybe you, you broke something of your older brother or sister. Do you guys get in trouble for doing that? What's one of the things that your mom or your dad would make you do if you, if you broke something of somebody else's or if you hurt somebody else? What would you be required to do? What would they make you say? They would make you say sorry. Now let me ask you a question. Shane, I need you to sit down either on the box or on the bench. Thank you, sir. If they ask you to say sorry because you broke something or you hurt somebody, do you look at your brother or sister and go, sorry? Sometimes, right? You're like, sorry. And then what happens? Then your mom, yeah, sorry, not sorry. But then your mom or your dad say, Say it right. Right? And then you have to go, I'm sorry. Right? Well, what happens after you say, I'm sorry? What does the other person say? It's okay. It's okay. No, it's not. Sometimes my sister tells me that. Sometimes your sister tells you it's okay. Sorry doesn't cut it. You know what that means? That means I don't forgive you. That's what it means. When somebody says, I'm sorry, and they go, sorry doesn't cut it. They, they're literally saying, I don't forgive you. And you know what? That means if you say, I'm sorry, and somebody says, I don't forgive you, that means that the relationship is messed up and broken. Yes, sir, Mr. Adrian. Sorry is bad for your health? <laughs> well, let me let me tell you about a story in the Bible. It says, I am sorry up on the screen. That's right. Let me tell you a story about the uh, out of the Bible that talks about a person who refused to say, I'm sorry. Okay. This is the story. It's in it's found in the book called Corinthians. Can you say that word? Corinthians. And there was a guy in a church who was doing bad things. And he was not saying he was sorry. And then the leader said, you need to say you're sorry to the whole church for what you're doing. I'm not going to say I'm sorry. Well, if you're not going to say you're sorry, you can't come to this church anymore. And so they made him not come to the church anymore. And then after a while, the guy was sorry. And he tried to say he was sorry. And you know what the church people were doing? You can't come to our church anymore. We don't want you to come to our church anymore. Even though he was saying he was sorry. That's like saying. Exactly. The church people were saying sorry doesn't cut it. And that's not right. Because you know what God said? 
God said, if you don't forgive your brother or your sister, God won't forgive you. And so you know what the leader said to the people of the church? You need to, this is what they said, listen. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote you. In other words, I am really upset. My heart is breaking. Hey, Adrian and Shane, look at me, please. I wrote to you with many tears. I was crying while I was writing. I want you to know that if anyone has caused you pain, that he has, he and he is, excuse me, <laughs> I'm in the wrong place. That's what the problem is. Okay. He said, this is what I want you to do. If he asks you for forgiveness, if he says he is sorry, then you need to forgive him. And listen to this. You need to forgive him and comfort him so that he won't be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So that he won't be sad. So he, he will be, he will say, I'm sorry. And you say, I do forgive you. Cause if you don't forgive him, your relationship is broken. And this is the last thing I wanted you to read. I want to read to you. Paul said to the people in this church, I want you to reaffirm your love for him. Don't, what does the word reaffirm mean? No, it's exactly what they say. He doesn't want them to say, sorry, it doesn't cut anymore. He wants them to say, you know what? I forgive you and I love you. And you know how you can do that? How do you show somebody that you love them? How? You give them something. What's one thing you could give your brother or your sister that if you hurt them or they were upset and they came and said, I'm sorry. And you went, that's okay. I forgive you. And you gave them a hug. That's a way to show I love you and refer, reaffirm your love and your relationship. Because see, sometimes just saying the words isn't enough. Sometimes you have to do something to make them feel like you still love them and still want them to be part of your life. So I want to pray for you guys. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Okay, guys, let's pray. Jesus, please help these kids to come to understand that you want all of us to forgive anyone who causes us harm. And you want us not to just forgive them with our words, but you actually want us to love them and welcome them back into our life. Even if that means we have to give them a hug. And that's hard sometimes. But I ask that you help these kids to understand that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you guys can head on out. And your teacher's back in your room already. Last week, I preached a sermon on who? Anybody remember? Peter. What I didn't tell you was the title of that sermon was called, I Will Serve You Till I Die, Part 1. This week is, I Will Serve You Till I Die, Part 2. And it is about Judas. And I want to read to us this section of scripture out of Matthew chapter 27. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 10, it said, Then when Judas, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? Sorry doesn't cut it. See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, Judas departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful for, to put them into the treasury since this is blood money. So they took counsel and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then what then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, this 30 pieces of silver thing 
Do you know what's the significance of this 30 pieces of silver? Why? I mean, it's kind of an odd, weird thing. Anybody have any understanding of what that is? Why 30 pieces of silver is significant? Well, I'll tell you. In this pouch, which was loaned to our church for the season of Lent, we have 30 coins. Now, in our world, they don't make coins out of solid silver anymore. And so it was important. It wasn't easy for us to find even 30 pieces of silver. But we have 30 half dollars here. So a total of $15 worth. But we keep them here on this table during Lent as a visual reminder. And I haven't, I've had people ask me what this is about. And I said, you'll know soon. I'll tell you soon. So that's what today's about. This 30 pieces of silver is the price of a slave. I'll tell you about it in just a second when I get back to my seat. 30 coins made out of silver is the price of a slave. Turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Chapter 21, verses 28 through 32 are what we're looking at right now. And these are instructions that Moses gave to the nation of Israel that said, when something happens, this is what has to happen. So in this particular case, if you go through the whole book of uh, Exodus, I mean, the whole chapter of 21, it's talking about what happens if an ox were to attack a human being. And gore them. And it talks about all the penalties and all the things that have to happen. And then you get to verse 28 and it says, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox must be stoned to death. And its flesh must not be eaten. But the owner of the ox is not liable. But if an ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, has not kept it in a stall or tied up, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. Now, if it gores a man's son or a daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. However, if an ox gores a slave, whether male or female, the owner shall give the master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. So literally, if an ox, an owner of an ox knows that his ox is aggressive and has a problem and it gets away and he gores somebody, the ox, the owner can literally give up his own life unless it's just a slave. If it's a slave, just give him 30 pieces of silver. It's good. We're all good. It's an insult. The 30 pieces of silver is a minuscule amount of money in this economy. That's the thought process. And so when Judas was given 30 pieces of silver for Christ's life, he literally says, what will you give me if I turn him over to you? And they said, we'll give you the equivalent of what it would be if an ox gored a slave. 30 pieces of silver. Now, I can read to you out of Zechariah chapter 11, which is the prophecy that talks all about this 30 pieces of silver and Judas and the high priest and the Sanhedrin and the, and the elders and, and the temple and the potter's field. It's amazing how this prophecy is so detailed. And I'll read it to you real quick. It's just two verses long out of Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah said, I told them, if you think it best, Give me my pay. Now, the story behind this is that Zechariah was commanded by God to become a shepherd over a group of people that, in the words of the, of the prophecy, they were condemned to be slaughtered, uh, 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 to be a, over a flock that was condemned to be slaughtered. And it goes on about how he served the flock and how he did this and how he did this and how this. And it finally comes down to this last two verses. And he said, and I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay. But if not, just keep it. So they gave me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, now you take that silver and you throw it to the potter, the handsome, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them 
to the potter at the house of the Lord. So what Zechariah says in these two verses is, I took this minuscule amount of pay. They were insulting me with this value. And I walked over to the temple. I threw it in and said, give it to the potter. Now, what we, again, don't understand because of our culture is uh, our difference between our culture and their culture is a potter in the Jewish culture was one of the lowest of the lows when it comes to the workers. And it, they, they were just people that just they, they would make, you know, pots like bedpans and they would make pots like vessels. It was the, the, their job was just to work with clay. They didn't have any major skill. They weren't artists. They were just potters. So. um so there's this idea of, I don't find any value in these 30 coins. You've insulted me by giving me these 30 coins. Throws them into the temple and says, give them to the potter. And walks away. And then that prophecy has been identified by scholars of being a messianic prophecy. And it literally goes to this Matthew chapter 27 section, verses 3 through 10. Because Judas goes to the leader's. And says, what will you give me if I betray him to you, if I turn him over to you? And they give him 30 pieces of silver. And we'll see in a little bit what happens with that 30 pieces of silver. But before we go there, I want to ask you, what do you know without looking in the Bible right now? What do you know just off the top of your head? What do you know about the apostle known as Judas? What are some trivia, some facts, things that you've been taught? What do you know about Judas? Was he a tax No, that was Matthew. Okay. But he did keep the money. He did he keep the money. The yes, he had charge of, the, he was the treasurer for the group. And then when the alabaster was broke, he was the one who said he could have given this to the poor. Right? Yes, he was. Well, Yes, he did. And we're going to see all of this as we look through this. But yes, these are all true statements. Anything else that you know about Judas? Okay. You will be surprised if you do a word search on the name Judas to find that there's very little in the Gospels about him, even though he's one of the prominent people of the disciples, of the apostles. Judas was known as Judas Iscariot. That Phrase Iscariot literally means of Kerioth. Kerioth was a village in the southern part of Israel and Judah. That it was actually down in Judea, south of Jerusalem, down near the Dead Sea. If you look at all of the other apostles, they were all from the Galilean area. If you remember last week, we talked about Peter being approached in the courtyard of the high priest saying, and then someone said, you must be one of his disciples. Your accent gives you away. You're Galilean. And he calls down curses on himself. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know this man. Well, Judas was Judean. He was not from Galilee. He was, if you will, a, an outsider within the group. There were 12 apostles, but one of the 12 was not from the hometown. He was an outsider. One of the other things scholars tell us, although we don't have anything in scripture to actually give us this, Jesus called, picked each of the disciples, each of the apostles. Judas Tradition tells us joined, but was not specifically called. And I can't show you a verse in, in the scripture that says that. That's just what tradition tells us. Now, if you go to Matthew chapter 10, Jesus, I'm going to just read things to you. I, I, I'm going to be going all over the, the gospels, the four gospels this morning. So I'm not going to have a list on the screen, but Matthew chapter 10 it says, and Jesus called to himself 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. Simon, who was also called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, 
Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So one of the very first mentions of Judas as an apostle is he's Judas from Iscariot, who was the betrayer of Christ. They didn't give anybody else's story other than Matthew, the tax collector. Everyone else is just named. But for whatever reason, Judas was identified as the betrayer of Christ. Now, realize this gospel, Matthew, was being written 20 to 30 years after the death of Jesus and the death of Judas. So um, this was the perspective of the early church. He was the betrayer of Christ. He was notoriously known as the betrayer of Christ. Now, what were some of the other things that we noted? We mentioned, uh, and uh, Nathan mentioned that he was the thief. Judas, uh, if you look at John chapter 12, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And they gave a dinner for him there. And Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. And Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And this is what you were referring to, Nathan. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he uh, he who was about to betray Jesus, said, Why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always with you, but you do not always have me. So what did the early church say? Because this was, again, written 20 to 30 years after Jesus's crucifixion, after Judas's death. The early church, whenever Judas was talked about, it was like Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Christ. That was the attitude. That was the mindset of the church. Now, what did Jesus have to say? What does the scripture quote Jesus as saying about Judas? Well, first of all, Jesus called Judas a devil. John chapter 6. After, this is what uh, Tammy read for us this morning. John chapter 6. After this, many of his disciples turned back because Jesus had just said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And this was a hard saying. And over 150 people walked away. And Jesus turns to his friends and he says, do you also want to go? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered Peter and said, do, did I, excuse me, answered the 12 of them and said, did I not choose you the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So again, The betrayer, the betrayer, the betrayer. But Jesus himself said, I have chosen you, all 12 of you, and one of you. He doesn't identify who. One of you is a devil. Then Jesus, in John chapter 13, called Judas unclean. John chapter 13 is the chapter in the, in the gospel where Jesus is, do, is holding the last supper with his apostles, with his disciples. And before the meal starts, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And this is the point where Jesus goes to wash Peter and Peter goes, you're not washing my feet. And he says, well, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. He said, well, then wash all of me. And he said, no, you don't have to wash all of you. Just if you're clean, you're good. Well, this is what Jesus said in that transaction. Jesus said to Peter, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, 
not all of you are clean. But think about this. Well, no, we're not going to go there yet. We're going to come back to that maybe. John chapter 13 also later on. It's Jesus said, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. You familiar with that phrase, that that little statement? Well, that's actually quoting Psalm 41 verse nine. This was a Psalm of David. And in Psalm of David versus Psalm 41 verse nine, it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. What does that mean? Jesus is quoting it from David. But what does that mean? In ancient Middle Eastern culture and even today in Middle Eastern culture, it is an offense to show the bottom of your foot, the sole of your foot to anyone. It is an extreme insult. How many of you remember years ago, probably 25 or 30 years ago, during a press conference in the Middle East, the president of the United States was standing at a podium and one of the people took off his shoes and threw them at the president and he had to duck. Do you remember ever seeing that video? That was exactly what this is talking about. They were showing contempt by shodding him. By throwing their shoe at him. It's the same as sticking your foot up at him and saying, I show you the heel of my foot. It is an an incredible insult. It's not part of our culture, but it would be like coming up to someone and going with your middle finger extended. Showing a sign of incredible disrespect, incredible hostility. And Jesus says, I've offered him hospitality. I've washed his feet. I have given him food. And he in turn repays me by showing me the heel of his foot. But that's exactly what was going on between Jesus and Judas that night around that last supper table. Now, so Jesus said, one of the 12 was a devil. Jesus said, one of the 12 was unclean. And he said, I know who is betraying me. And then he said, in verse, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 20 to 25, he pronounces a woe over Judas. Listen to this. When it was evening, Jesus reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him after another, is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, looked up and said, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus looked at him and said, you have said so. Can you imagine the break in relationship that was going on there? The tension that was there, the hostility that was there. Jesus knew what was going on and he literally is giving him absolutely every opportunity to change. One of you is a devil. One of you whom I chose to be my closest intimate companions who I have poured my life into. You, one of you is a devil. One of you is unclean. And I know who you are. And I know you're going to betray me. And you've even received hospitality from me and have shown me nothing but derision. And I am saying to you, one last warning. Woe to you. If you do not change, woe to you. It would be better for you had you not been born. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you?
How in the world? How in the world can someone who says they love Jesus end up with that much venom, that much anger, that much... What was it? What turned his heart? Well, if you read Luke chapter 22, it says... Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And then if you look in John chapter 13 again, it says during the supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus, blah, 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 blah. So how could Judas, an intimate follower of Jesus, come to the point to betray Jesus? He allowed Satan to have influence over him. I can't tell you What happened in what sequence? I can't tell you how, when, or why. I can tell you from what we're reading in the scriptures, it wasn't just an instantaneous thing. It was something that was coming on for a while. And going back to this thief that was stealing out of the money bag, was it that he was never converted? Was it that he came into it with false deceptive motives? If that's the case, why did Jesus empower him to cast out demons and to heal? Because he was one of the twelve, given that power. So I, I don't have those answers. All I know is someone who was that close to Jesus, someone who had felt and experienced the power of God coming through him to bring health and healing and ministry can get to the point in his walk where the enemy can take control. Where he gets identified as being unclean and a devil. And it would be better had he never been born. Can you imagine Jesus speaking that over you? I want to back off a little bit and go back to last week. There was something in my study from last week that I had never come across before. And I wanted to share it so badly last week. I was like, nope, nope. Hold on till next week. Let me share this with you guys. When Jesus and the disciples were in the upper room having the last supper, at some point, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? The one who I give the morsel of bread to. He says that to the beloved disciple, and then he hands the bread to Judas. And then he turns to Judas in one of the gospels and says, that which you are about to do, go do quickly. And this, the gospel writer says that Judas got up and left after that. And the guys just assumed that Jesus had given him some kind of an assignment. He needed to go buy something because he was the keeper of the purse. It was at that point that Judas went to the to the leaders or I mean, with, I don't know exactly what we what was going on. But somehow, some way after that, if that uh, they left the, the upper room, all of them left the upper room and were heading to the Kidron Valley. And then Judas led that mob of people to the Garden of Gethsemane and betrayed Christ with a kiss. And then the arrest took place. And remember, I said last week, chaos ensued and people scattered. And they, the crowd with the torches and pitchforks led Jesus to the house of the high priest. And it says, if you go to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verses 3 and 4, it says, When Judas, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned... 
he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. When Judas, the betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, how did he know? They didn't have CNN, cable news. They didn't have internet. They didn't have telephones. They didn't have text messaging. How in all of the chaos would Judas have known what was transpiring in the house of the priest, of the high priest, unless he was there? How did he get there? Well, turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verses 15 and 16 say, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty at the gate, and then brought Peter into the courtyard. Traditionally, I have heard that this guy, this disciple who brought Peter into the courtyard of the high priest was the Apostle John. Where did that come from? He's somehow in with the high priest. He has some connection. We're never given any of that. John was a fisherman in Galilee. How would he have any connection with the high priest? But that's what tradition has always said. That's what I've been taught since I was young. But as I studied last week, numerous scholars said, which one of the 12 had face-to-face contact with the high priest? Judas. He had a contract to turn Jesus over. It was perfectly natural for him to come with the crowd to bring Jesus to the high priest's house. So I'm not saying that that's exactly what happened because we're not told. But from my own looking at this and going, well, that makes a much more plausible idea than some random John happens to know somebody somehow, but we're never given that information. So for me, it makes much more sense to have Judas walk in with the crowd when Jesus is arrested and carried to the high priest. And then Peter gets stopped at the gate because he's not part of this. And then then Judas, who is known to the high priest, goes to the courtyard gate, gate, gate slave and says, let him in. He's a good guy. Let him in. So Judas, if indeed that is the case, Judas is in the courtyard of the high priest during the time that Jesus is being tried before the high priest. So then it makes perfect sense when they say, we're going to send him to Pilate and have him condemned for Peter, for Judas to go, oh my God, what did I do? What did I do? What did I do? So Judas When he saw that Christ was condemned, Matthew chapter 27, changed his mind and brought the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders and said, no, 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 I have sinned. I have have sinned. He's innocent. I have betrayed innocent blood. No. And what do they say to him? Sorry, doesn't cut it. What's that to us? We got what we wanted out of you. See to it yourself. Now in Matthew 27, this passage that we've been looking at, verse 3, the Greek word metamelomai, is what has been translated in the version I've been reading, changed his mind. Metamelomai. Metamelomai means changed his mind. Well, that Greek word can be changed his mind. 
felt remorse, regret, or repent. It was, that word was used numerous times throughout the, 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 the New Testament. And in, in various places, it was used either as change the mind, feel remorse, to repent, or to regret. So Judas, recognizing that what he has done was sin, repents and goes to the only religious leader he knows. I have sinned and I was wrong and this needs to stop. I don't want this. This is not. No, no, please. No, this is wrong. I'm sinning. He's innocent. No. no. And he was told. What is that to us? See to it yourself. He turns to his religion to confess and repent of his sin. And he is rejected out of hand. But where are he supposed to go after that? He couldn't go back to the followers of Jesus. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. Which is evident to us through what we read every time we read about Judas in the Gospels. Even 20, 30, 40 years later, they're still going, that vile betrayer, that Judas. So we have a man who is cut to the depth of his being, recognizing the depths of his sin, the vileness of his sin. And he's screaming out, I have sinned. I have sinned. I am sorry. I was wrong. It is not right. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. And has no place to go. So what happens in this lost and alone and despondent, I mean, despondent state. He takes the 30 pieces of silver, throws it into the temple and says, I don't want this. And goes and hangs himself. Now, my question for us this morning is what will be Judas's ultimate destiny? Because we're not told. If you look at, well, let me back off for just a second. Last week in our membership class, I talked to the people present about something called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Does anybody who was present there remember that and what I was talking about? The Wesleyan quadrilateral is a way to form your theology. Okay? And John Wesley taught this little formula of how to form your theology. The very first thing is, what does it say in scripture? The second thing is, what does the church traditionally hold to? The third thing is, what does your reason say? And the fourth thing is, what have you experienced in your own walk with Christ? So what does scripture say? What is the church's tradition? What have you personally experienced? And what does your brain think through when you're trying to process whatever this spiritual truth is? So I would submit to you using the Wesleyan quadrilateral, try to figure out what is Judas's ultimate destiny. Obviously, we don't have it for us in scripture. We only have other things that we can look at in scripture and then try to reason it out. That's number one. Number two, what does tradition say? Well, tradition says he was vile. He was a betrayer. We don't like him. But those words were written within 20 to 30 years after his death by the people who he hurt. By the people who he destroyed relationship. And it wasn't until literally the 17 or 1800s until the, the thought processes of people who study the scriptures started to challenge any of that. 
So tradition, Christian tradition is Judas is in hell and he's going to stay there. They're going to find the deepest, darkest hole and put him right there next to Satan. But let me let me give you a little thought that you can chew on. And again, I'm going back to what does scripture say? What does tradition say? What does my reason say? And what is my personal experience in my walk with Christ? Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Now, this is the same man who was in the courtyard with Judas on the night that Jesus was being tried and convicted and condemned to death. This was written by the man who denied Christ three times. This was written by the man who was present while Judas was there watching this trial. And this is the teaching that Peter gave to the church. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It gives you hope. That gives you hope for your prodigal. We had a prayer this morning for someone who's in a prodigal state. God, draw them back to you. Give them opportunity to repent. Help them to come to a sense of who they are in their relationship with you and the fact that they need to make it right. Change their heart, O oh God. Call them to repentance, O oh God. And Peter is telling the church. Now, Peter wrote this back within 30 years or so of the death of Christ. The Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, let me give you a statement of Jesus. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. In the midst of Christ's crucifixion, as they are nailing his hands to the cross, as they are nailing his feet to the cross, as he is in dire agony, Christ cries out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Who was Jesus praying for? The Roman soldiers who were crucifying him. Had those guys repented? No. Had they acknowledged sin and confessed sin? No. But Jesus is asking the Father to forgive them because they don't understand. Now, I cannot stretch this far enough to make that prayer cover Judas. But I can tell you from what Peter said in his letter and what I read Luke reporting that Jesus said, the heart of God is that no one should perish, but all should come to right relationship with God through the confession of their sins, the repentance and change of their heart. And I honestly, I would be comfortable with saying, I see that in Judas. It was recorded for us in the scriptures that Judas had indeed a change of heart. It was recorded for us in scriptures that he confessed his sin. But he had no place to go with it. So I cannot stretch it far enough to say definitively that he died in right relationship with God. And let me do one other thing. I want to say this definitively as Pastor Bob, an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene. Suicide is not an unpardonable sin. I have heard ministers say that. That is from the pit of hell. Someone who has reached the point in their mental state 
where they are so despairing and so without hope and so without any light, but are stuck in darkness and see the only out as ending. That is not sin, that is despair, that is pain, that is darkness, and that's what we see in Judas. We see a man who was sorry for what he did, who acknowledged that what he did was sin, who changed his heart, and who was trying to make it right. And he got rejected out of hand by any person who he had a hope of trying to make right relationship with. It goes right back to what I said to the kids. Sorry doesn't cut it. It's not the answer to give someone who's asking for forgiveness. You need to say, I forgive you, and you need to hug them, welcoming them back into fellowship. Because if you don't, their end could be just as dark. We don't have the answer. We don't know where Judas will end. We don't. I hate to think that Jesus calling him a devil and saying that he was unclean and saying, woe to you, it would have been better had you never been born. That was a condemning statement and it's over with and done. Because all of those statements were done long before the change of heart and all of those statements are done long before the confession of sin. I hope that it is God's heart to extend grace. And I would welcome Judas as a neighbor in heaven. I even thought as I was processing this for myself, the apostles were all told by Jesus that there will be thrones in heaven that they will be seated on and they will be judging and being rulers over. And can you imagine being put under the authority of Judas if indeed that happens? Could you? Can you? Because, like I said, we've been taught for thousands of years, Judas Iscariot, betrayer. But if someone confesses and repents of their sin, don't they have access to the throne? Again, I can't go there. I cannot stretch it far enough to say definitively, this is what the scriptures say. But, oh, my word, it makes sense to me. And I'll leave it at that. You guys have to process it for yourself. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us these glimpses into what it means to be followers of Christ. Help us, God, to take it seriously as we read this word, to apply it to our lives. Help us, Father, to form right theology. Help us, Father to honor you and to advance your kingdom through anything that we say or do and help us never, ever, ever to fall into a trap of, of, of poor thinking and poor theology, Lord. Let us never allow the enemy to have a foothold. Let us never allow the enemy to bring us into darkness. Lord, we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.